Welcome to the B2B Category Creators Podcast, hosted by Gil Alouche, founder and CEO of Metadata.io. This podcast is all about sharing the real and sometimes edgy secrets of B2B software creation. On today's episode, we have Amitabh Sinha, co-founder and CEO of Workspot, and Chris Rudigrup, co-founder and CEO of Sendoso. All right. Well, welcome to the Category Creators Podcast. Very excited. I have two great folks here, Amitabh Sinha uh, from Workspot and Chris Rudy Grupp. Did I say it correctly? Yeah, you got it. From, from Sendoso. Uh, very excited to have you both. I know both of your companies uh, and um, I'm excited to get started. Uh, I'm the CEO and founder of Metadata. And uh, maybe we'll start with you, Amitab, if you can give us a kind of a quick introduction on, about yourself. CEO and founder of Workspot. Uh, we started the company in 2012, and uh, it's nine years now, I guess. <laughs> um, we've um, raised $80 million um, and uh, going after enterprise customers for essentially enabling people to work from anywhere. Well, very relevant uh, to today's world. I hear great things about you and your company from Bill Portelli, uh, which is, I think, a mutual uh, board member. So right. very, very excited to learn more. Um, Chris, you're next. All right. So I'm the CEO and co-founder of Sendoso. We're a sending platform that helps other companies send out corporate gifts, promotional swag, you know, fun little quirky gifts, booze, you name it, we can send it. I started the company about four years ago, spent uh, 10 years in software sales prior to that. And um, yeah, excited to be here and tell you more about my journey. Awesome. So that's exactly what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about a few subjects, but category creation is one. Whether you agree, disagree, you have an opinion, I would like to, would love to learn about it from your current experience as well as previous ones um, and founder journey. That is also extremely interesting uh, to me, to our listeners. So category creation, it is, it's a big subject. It's been, it's been talked about a lot. I think sometimes founders are, you know, we all read Good to Great and, and other books that kind of try to get you to think about that, that concept. Chris, maybe we can start with you. Like, what is your, what is your thinking about category creation? Good idea, bad idea, when is the good idea? And what's your personal experience uh, deciding to go into it? Yeah, so I think it's a great idea. Um, I think category creation uh, helps set you up uh, for success long-term. It makes you really think about the category and it's what also um, investors, if you're going down the path of venture capital, um, they want to see category creators in most cases or fast followers of, of existing categories that you're disrupting. But if you're creating a category, you know, that's the type of company that can be, you know, lifelong and IPO and, and beyond. So a uh, big believer in it. Um, in our very early days, we thought about category creation from day one. Um, and um, we, we even tried to coin a category and, and kind of recoined it after some, some different kind of advisor feedback. Um, happy, should I get into the weeds? You wanna hear some of these stories? I, 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 this is the first time I would, I think it's the first time I hear of someone saying that you're thinking about it from day one. I yeah. don't think I've heard this before. Definitely not. It haven't been true for me. I didn't even know about category creation when I started the company, this concept. So yes, would love to hear, hear that and, and hear. I, I'm well, I would say, um, we're lucky in that one of our um, early investors was uh, David Sachs's firm, Craft Ventures. And so David Sachs uh, really uh, focuses on kind of the category creation talk track and investing in category creators. 
Um, you know, he was a part of uh, the PayPal founding crew. He founded Yammer, which was a category creation. So he really thought about category creation a decade ago. And so he really ingrained it in my brain early on. And so with that, you know, uh, really started to think about category creation. And be, uh, our first thought was uh, actually did some reading on Zora and how they came up with the whole like subscription economy theme. And so I, I liked how they were positioning it as it's more of like a trend and something to be a part of. But, you know, our first stab at it was what we wanted to call our platform because we didn't want to just call ourselves a, a direct mail platform because that was, um, you know, had some old con on, a, on old uh, school connotations perhaps. And we didn't want to be like an, just a account-based marketing platform because that's such a broad topic and we really wanted to be specific in our niche. Um, so our first stab, we actually called ourselves an engagement delivery platform and thought engagement delivery was the category. And that was, we got uh, shit on for that. Um, everyone thought it was terrible. Um, you know, our investors, everyone, but we used it for probably a couple months in our deck. The thought was it was like interesting enough that it kind of lured you in, but only it lured you in and you're like, what the heck does that mean even? Um, and so we did some thought leadership, uh, brainstorming, um, we actually talked uh, to this gentleman, uh, Christopher Lockhead, who actually uh, has a book called Play Bigger, which is all about category creation, which uh, I'd recommend reading. I think it's a great book. And, and, and um, we ended up switching uh, our category to ascending platform, which I think it gives you enough context that you can get behind and it gives enough broadness that multiple people can end up falling in, under this category. And you know, since then, it's actually, uh, we've, we've seen other entrants into the category and, and other people that have popped up, raised money, and they're kind of talking about it in the same way we are, so to speak. Interesting. So you took one stab, got some feedback, not the best, like not the most positive, and then went again and, 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 uh, and tried a different one. Amitabh, what, what has been your experience? What, what are your thoughts about that, you know, from day one, uh, coming up with that category, starting to make that, that new name? No, uh, our story is interesting. We started in 2012, and um, uh, we were trying actually not to create a new category, right? Which is creating a new category is so difficult. But when we talked about what we were doing to customers, they couldn't understand what we were doing. And they're like, this is a new category. And we're trying to convince them, no, it's actually not a new category. It's, this, it's, it's a new, uh, new, new way to think about the same problem. And what we found was for customers, right? It was important that we anchor what we were doing to something they're already familiar with. Because if you completely try to read, uh, recenter and say, this is a brand new idea, like um, it's just really difficult for people to understand, right? What we were able to do, it was anchor it to say, hey, it's you used to use laptops to work from anywhere, but you only needed a Windows laptop. Now you can actually work from anywhere and use your favorite device because the Windows is running in the cloud now. And anchoring it that way made it easier for people to understand. So we ended up creating a new category, but we anchor it to an existing category so that people can actually draw the parallels between them and say, oh, okay, I understand that category. I can sort of visualize how you get to this new category. Try to not create a category. We created a category and then we said, okay, let's make it anchor to something that people already understand so we can actually explain what, what, how we are different from that old category. Yeah, I think that's uh, really interesting. I've uh, thought about that too. And, and when we were in the early days, <clears throat> when you think about selling into the enterprises too, and really these analysts out there, like they're not gonna cover you per se if it's just some random category that no one's ever heard of. 
but if you can anchor to an existing category. So we sometimes will talk about direct mail or we'll talk about CRM or marketing automation and how we like this Venn diagram where we exist amongst those. And then they're like, ah, I got it. And so I think that that's one tip if you're in the enterprise space and you're trying to create a category, what are the analysts already covering? So you're not like in no man's right. land. And I think the interesting thing for us is the analysts are now creating a new category, right? To say, hey, <laughs> this is a new category. And now these are the players in this category. And it's super confusing because now they have to go figure out what the attributes of the category are and we can help them define it because um, if they define it too expansively, it includes 50 people. If they define it too narrowly, it's just us. So how do you actually make it interesting, right? That's a, that's a great point. How do you... How do you control the narrative? So like you have a proxy or you, you were pushed to, to, to have an anchor or a proxy so, and you said the same thing, Chris, because you, you didn't want to be completely in a silo. But how do you also affect the narrative so that it is indeed something that you are, hopefully, I'm assuming that the, the, the hope and the, the intent is to lead that category? Correct, correct. I think it's customer stories for us, which is I think analysts don't take you seriously till you start having them talk to your, your customers. The more customer stories they hear, then the more they believe that you actually are doing something different, right? Which is, okay, you can't be the old category because these people know the old category and they don't think you're the old category, right? And so it's your customer stories that have been the most effective for us. And I mean, our customers are mid to large enterprise customers, right? So for them, they talk to analysts quite often before um, deciding which vendors to even invite to the party, if you will, right? And so for them to then tell their analysts, hey, we think these guys are completely different. You don't understand how they're different. That is more effective than us sort of telling them we're different because that's only sort of like, that's your point of view, but like, show me other people who believe you. It's interesting. I think you mentioned uh, Chris, David Sachs, and you just mentioned Amitabh, you know, no one's going to listen to you. Like the customers are the ones who make the decision and the ones who are actually influencing. They, uh, Deanna from Yammer told us, told me in the in episode ago that both at Yammer and at, um, I forget the name of the social media company. It's a very well-known one. I'll, I'll look it up in a second. Um, at both of them, the analysts didn't really want to cover them and were even pissed because at Yammer, customers could just start using the product, but it's in an enterprise and the analysts were kind of against it. And even the, so when they started covering them and saying, oh, this is not going to continue, this is not going to last, she realized that customers calling analysts and asking, is this safe? Like, should we, should we use this, uh, this platform? Because the, the analyst really started taking them seriously to the extent where she realized, okay, I'm going to make a program out of it. And that's exactly how she got, uh, how she got the analyst firms, the Gartner enforcers of the world to, to create a category, a category, agree with that name and, and put them in the right spot. How do you get your, your customers to do that for you? to say, this is something new, you have no idea, this is not something that you've heard about before. How do you get to that place where customers unsolicitedly or solicitedly go and be the voice for you? I think any mid to large enterprise customer that buys from you has gone through that exercise internally to justify why they're buying you, which is um, you probably show up, there's no budget for you. So they're creating a budget for you. So they have to go explain to their bosses, to the CFO, I'm buying this and I can't buy the, the products from the other category or the previous category or another set of vendors because this is here's how is, these guys are different. And I think most of our customers have very, very detailed research on why they're buying us, right? It's not a short-term process. 
Um, they're very detailed thought processes. And so when you put them in front of an analyst, so they don't, we didn't do what you were saying that other uh, person did. Um, we sort of, our analyst said, hey, we like your story, but like, do you have any customers? Like, okay, let, let's introduce customers to you. And then it was sort of a uh, unfiltered conversation between the customer and the analyst. And uh, the customers would tell the analyst why they picked us. And we don't know what they said, but to the point the analyst came back and said, you know what, um, here's what your customers are telling us about you. And here's how you are different, right? And do you guys talk about this to your next set of customers? So it's interesting because the analysts then come back and start giving you guidance on how to talk to your own next set of customers, right? So it's, it's, a, um, it's super beneficial for all sides, right? Because our customers educate the analysts, the edu analysts educate us, we educate the next set of customers and it sort of goes. Yeah. I would chime in there and I totally agree with that. And a couple of things that we've done is one is just cultivating a community where, uh, you know, we really try to drive, we have this super center community where we try to empower our, our customers to be like on a pedestal and celebrate their success, which in turn makes them more of these advocates in the market. And then it makes it easier for them to, out, to outward share their success. And then the analysts pick up on that. I've even taken it one step further too. And I have some kind of advisors who are customers too that are you know one step closer to me than just a customer is and you know they're even more inclined to to talk talk up sendoso as well and so that um, has been successful over the last few years as well interesting so so for you chris i i hear this customer advisory board or, or similar kind of um... so we have a customer advisory board but this is actually more of like a personal advisory group where they're uh closer to me than, than just an advice uh, than just a customer advisor. Um, and so I'll, I open up to them a little bit more. I give them highlights on the company. I might uh, think about them more as almost like a, an investor advisor where I'm uh, confidently sharing updates and, and asking for miscellaneous things along our journey. Like, uh, Hey, do you know anyone that we're hiring for this? Or, Hey, we're doing this panel. Do you want to talk? And so they're one step closer than just a, uh, traditional customer advisory board fascinating and and uh and you'll 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 send them towards a, an analyst or or get some of the feedback to understand like how you can influence those analysts um i, I would say like uh i don't send them towards analysts i think i let that kind of happen on its own but if an analyst comes to us and wants to talk to somebody i have pools of, of customers that i can reach out to um, or we, we just recently did like the Forrester TI, the total economic impact, um, where, you know, they go, Forrester goes really in depth and creates this, you know, huge report. And so, you know, for some of those things, it's helpful to have, a, you know, customers close by that you can call on that are uh, willing to, to help out. This is really interesting. Uh, it's really, it's really interesting to me. You know, I started this podcast as a way to learn how to do this. Uh, this really is like, it, it doesn't get more organic than that. It became a podcast, but it, at first it was just to learn how to, how do we do this? Because it's, there, it's to me, it's, uh, it seemed abstract at first uh, because there's analysts who make so much of the decision and the PR and the publishing around it, which is where customers go. But then you're talking about the customers making all, you know, being the real important opinion who are influencing those decisions. What comes... So Amitab, when you're when you're talking about the feedback loop between customers, analysts, and you, like one is influencing the other, they, you know, you're talking to the customers, they call analysts and saying this is something new, we're not choosing the old one because of ABC. 
And then they call you and telling you like, well, we had all these customers calling us. And so you took it to your next customer using those. What happens, what happens first? Like, uh, how does the process work when you're actively trying to define and, and lead that category? You know, so I, I think you can't be in category creation till you have found product market fit, right? It's too early to do it. Um, and uh, I think the first three years, three and a half years, um, I think we were doing pretty much the same thing, trying to create a category, but we hadn't found product market fit. So you could tell all your stories, but if you have no customer saying that is a valid story, um, it's kind of difficult. Like, it doesn't work, right? We talked to analysts. They made a school vendor in like 18 months after we started had zero effect on customers, right? Like analysts saying this is a cool vendor, I didn't change anything for people. But once we got customer stories back, like real customer stories that were, we were able to then tell analysts, that's when it really started, right? So I would say first goal should be product market fit. Once you get that, then you actually can say, okay, this is actually a new category. Let me now go create that category effectively because I think if you start trying to create a category and you don't have product market fit, it's going to be, you're not going to be successful. First of all, let's drink to that because <laughs> I am asking lots of questions. Thank you for that insight. Do you think there is critical mass? So let's assume a customer or, or a company thinks they, they achieve product market fit for whatever reason. Um, is there a critical mass? Is it like 50 customers, 100 customers? Is there a revenue number? Is this a particular set of customer, a cohort, an NRR number, that a renewal that you certainly see, that you say, this is a critical mass that will be deployed with feedback to the analyst that will get us on that path where the analysts agree with us. We're unique, we're different. You know, I think it's either, for us, because our customers tend to be a little larger, right? So our average ACV is about $175,000 a year. Um, I think we started seeing it when we started getting our first large five-digit customer, then our last, first large six-digit customer, then our first large seven-digit customer. And then people said, oh, okay. Like I can see you guys growing, right? So when we introduce them to the first five-digit customer, they're like, yeah, that's interesting. Six-digit customer, okay, this is new. The first seven-digit customer is, was completely different for them at that point. So I, I don't know whether it's in terms of dollar amounts, but if you have the same size of customer, like $40,000 ACV customers, maybe it's volume then. But for us, it was not a volume thing. It was sort of five-digit, six-digit, seven-digit. And this was like, okay, we trust you guys to be enterprise class now. Very interesting. I'd probably maybe say in like the in the vault in the total sales, maybe in like the ten to twenty million ARR, it starts to become real. And yep. uh, and then I'd say if you're if you get to the fifty million ARR, then it's like okay, this is obviously a category. Right. Um, and obviously, you know, get a hundred million, you're public and you're big and huge, and everyone knows about you. But um, I'd say probably maybe like ten million is a threshold where it's actually proved yeah. that create a, a business around it and you should have enough either enough small customers to equal that or enough big customers that that is uh, enough there so thank you that's very interesting uh, very interesting take let's change gears for a second uh, talk about some personal experiences and uh, Chris we'll start with you okay. uh, tell me if you're willing to share about the first big hashtag fail moment that you had in category creation because you had it in your mind from day one and so you're aiming towards somewhere and maybe especially you were saying that you didn't get the best feedback in the beginning like given that the hashtag fail moment where you're thinking like i don't know if this is working like this category creation part or they don't like this name or 
maybe we're not a category creator. Like, how did that happen? What was it like? I mean, it was for sure when we tried to start pitching people on this delivery engagement platform category concept that it was just like, Who, what are you saying? And so that was like a fail for many months. You know, I think we were trying to be too creative and overthink uh, th uh, the category. Um, and while I think it was, uh, we wanted to be thoughtful in the early days of category creation, I think you don't want to overthink it. And it's not, you shouldn't spend all your thoughts on that. Um, but it is, you know, so that was a big fail. Um, you know, it didn't help us. Customers never used that word. No one thought about us as that. No one wanted to use that word. And so once we changed it, it was, uh, we had a good aha moment from there. I have two follow-ups on that. First one is, thank you, thank you for sharing that. You said it was for a few months. How did you, how did you monitor that this was a hashtag that was, that, that was a fail? Like what, what was that? How did you, how did you know? What did you monitor? Yeah. So, I mean, we were doing a little bit of like some, some focus groups asking people, you know, we, when we told people what we did, no one ever used that word or those, those phrases. When we, we saw people talking to us without us there, like in social or on review sites, that was never brought up. So, you know, and investors never thought about it like that. So everyone, it, I mean, it was blatantly clear that that was a, was a bad idea. I think if you can get your customers using the, the vernacular, um, or you can get investors or, or other people using it while you're not there. I think that's a good sign of success. Um, even so we've seen people, we've seen larger companies have RFPs that mention like the category now, which was like a good pat on our back, or we've seen people, hmm. you know, uh, put in their resumes uh, that we've, we've had fun seeing that they're like, you know, skilled in ascending platform, blah, blah, blah. So some of that is good to start to see some momentum there where, people are using this out in the, in the world uh, organically. Interesting. So skill sets, focus group, but mostly customers using it when you're not in the room. And uh, how did you recover from that? What, what did you do? Like, how did you say, okay, that didn't work. This is what we're doing next. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't too bad of a recovery because it was still early-ish in the days. So it was just kind of updating a lot of our, you know, our social posts, our slides, our some of our internal collateral and stuff. So um, there's still a few looming docs that I'll see once in a while that pull up from the, the graveyard that mentioned that, but it wasn't, it wasn't like tough to, it was still in the early days. It was the first, you know, couple of years of our existence. So it didn't, it didn't hurt us. You, you were cool with just trial and error. You tried it, didn't work. Is this cool? Mm -hmm. Try the next one. Beautiful. Amitab, tell us about- well, Ours was a little more painful than Chris's experience. <laughs> Um, because, uh, so just to give you a background, the, my previous job, I used to, uh, I ran the product, which was the old category. And so when we started this company, our tagline was the old category is dead. This is a new thing. And, um, we were doing that for about a year and a half. And we hired, we had this one new sales um, leader come in and he joined us for the first call. One of the first calls we had with a large customer. And he came back and said, I don't know what you guys are selling, but the customer really wants to buy the old category. Because <laughs> all I'm hearing is like the old category. And we basically shut him down and said, you guys, you know nothing about the old or the new category. So like, this is, this is like, stop. And three months later, we had to actually pivot the whole company. We went from being the anti-old category to the, to the next version of the old category company, like category 2.0 completely changed everything, right? It was, it took us about three months to get there because we were fighting about it for three months, which is 
how can we go from anti category to category 2.0 like that's just <laughs> like that's a big big change um and uh, i think that was sort of the beginning of when sort of we started speaking the language of the customer which is versus telling them what you want to buy is actually bad we just said okay we are 2.0 version of that and then i think people naturally sort of understood what we were doing like okay that was much simpler both of you have, have concluded that so really listening to the customer words and yep. being quick about like for i think three months i mean both of you did, did it pretty fast i think uh in a few months really being able no, no that is after three years of doing that so the three months happened quickly but it took us three years to get to the three months <laughs> fair enough that's cool um very interesting i think that's very very insightful for companies to to understand that so try and there listen to customers and try as fast as you can I would recommend over. what Chris did, which is if you have only collateral, then that's easier, right? Versus you actually build a whole product and then you're redoing everything like three years later. That's much more painful. I, I mean, Chris, you're very intentional about it, which, which I love. Like from day one, yeah. you already had this in your mind for, for the end, which I'm sure your investors really, really appreciate. You give so, so much clarity because it's one of your tenants. So. Yeah, I think you kind of have to fail fast there if you can. Um, yeah. because they're gonna you're gonna invest resources into it and you need to you know uh, do what you can do to make kind of just like a product market fit I think maybe there's a category fit kind of scenario where you yep. need to kind of make sure that you your products in the market but you know is the category is your product in the right category is the, is it a you know a brand new category is the 2.0 of an existing category and you need to know where you land and then double down on you You know talking about it that way like wait did you just coin a new term maybe <laughs> you heard it i heard it first you heard it here first that's cool um uh, all right let's switch gears uh one more time in your founder journey uh as you're creating category as you're you know doing the product market fit what's the moment what's the moment that you a moment that you felt You are on the right path like you're you know you're trying a bunch of things you're talking to investors they believe you're not you're raising some money you you maybe even even achieve product market fit but what's the moment where you think this is gonna be something really big a signal that you wake up in the morning you see something and you think I'm starting to believe my own story uh, this is gonna be a big deal I mean I, I, there's a couple of those I mean I th- thought it was gonna be big day zero so I think as a founder you have to be crazy obsessed with what you're doing and So I thought I was, you know, day zero, I was thinking this is going to be the biggest thing in the world. And it, you know, I built this out of pain. So I was my first customer. So when I was in sales, I really wanted uh, Sendoso to be an existent. And so I knew that if I built it, you know, people would come per se, because I wanted it. Um, but I think there's other milestones along the way, like, you know, an ARR milestone, like a million or 10 million or 20 million, that, that feels good. Or uh, you know head count thresholds like getting to a hundred or 500 employees or um, the, the one recent one that I stumbled across on accident that made me uh, just smile is that there's I was able to search through Sendo- uh, through LinkedIn and see that there was something like 600 people that put Sendoso in their profile in the in their description of like what they're good at next to like Salesforce and stuff so that was like a an aha moment too, where I'm like, wow, people are actually like bragging that they know how to use Sendoso as, as they want to share about getting new jobs and stuff. I don't know. I think there's a lot of different ways that you can look at it, but um, I think as founders, uh, you kind of have to be crazy that your idea is the best thing in the whole world, day zero. Thank you. Amit, Amitabh? 
you know i i think i agree with chris i mean you always have to start with the 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 conviction that this is a big market right and you're solving a big problem so uh, i think it you're challenged by your daily experience in terms of believing in that big market if you will um for us i think um, probably the first large when we got our first large seven figure customer and they the first phone call to us was we've looked at everything else in the market and we believe you're the only vendor we can work with and um are you ready to work with us because we'll probably be your biggest customer and please please tell us we are not and we don't we are okay we are, it will be your biggest customer but then you have to commit to being actually supporting us like your biggest customer and that was the first phone call they just called in and said this is this is it and uh, i think at that point was okay not only do we believe our story somebody else actually reads the story understands it grocks it and says repeats it back and says i know why you are the best solution on the market interesting um seven figure deal and and the customer asking you to support it tell me about the let's talk about the future for a second versus the the past experience uh or maybe it already happened but what what is the moment that you i'm assuming both of you are are you want to dominate your category right you want to be number one in your category and um what is the proof point for you if if you're monitoring it chris you mentioned a bunch of things amitab you as well what is the proof point that you say yeah we achieved it or like we are now the number one player in our category is it uh, a wave report is it g2 report is it something completely different I'll chime in first and say I, I think the the wave or the G2 or trust radius those things are for sure uh, good validation um, and you know it's definitely something to, to, to strive for I think it but it's not maybe the end-all be-all um, you want to keep shooting for the moon I think another area that we look at is one of our uh, our PR agency looks at like share voice I find that to be uh, useful too because it's who's talking about us or what press we're getting. And that um, tends to be um, a little bit less uh, controlled. And it's more of like what the market's saying. I think some, some of the, 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 like the G2 sites, you, you kind of ask your customers to do that. So maybe a competitor is not is vested in that. And you can easily, I want to say game it, but you can just have more, more of your customers you know, doing more reviews. But the, the share of the voice is interesting to me because it's, um, it's completely uncontrollable. And uh, so I, I, I tend to like listening to that. You know, as, uh, until you're private, it's kind of difficult to do it on sort of objective measures, right? You know, it's probably the analyst's feedback to us, right? Which is, um, we think you are the best solution in the market for this category. And here are the reasons why. And the reasons actually make sense to us. Uh, because I think it's... Uh, kind of difficult to measure the leader till I think it's fairly late in the process right and especially in SaaS businesses like ours I think the compounding effect is so significant right that if you can keep that compounding effect going um, what you can't measure is how fast a company is growing right like you might be able to measure based on LinkedIn how many employees you have today and say hey yeah hey, we have but it's the growth rate that changes everything, right? And the growth rate is really not measurable by sort of many of these external metrics, in my opinion, right? So it feels to me, it's sort of like, you want to be, you want to make sure that 
the the growth rate validation loop is in place for you right so that you think you're growing fast and the analysts are claiming that yep you know what we have customers calling and asking about you more often now than they were before um or we talk about you more often now because when they say we have the following requirements we point them your way because i think that changes the growth trajectory if you will that's one i think two is we are working with a large public cloud partners and they have also a sort of a bigger um glass and window that they're looking through and so their feedback is also sort of very material right because when they come back and say we like you for the following reasons and we'll introduce you to our largest customers because um we think you are the best solution in the category all of those are validating decisions right which is hey you might be the same size as somebody else today but if you can grow faster then you will because the compounding effects will be significantly bigger 2 3 4 5 years from now right and so for me at least i'm trying to measure the growth velocity more than the actual size right now and i think those are signals that are sending you about like if all of these people are saying here are the reasons why you should grow faster then you make sure that you actually can grow faster right interesting i like that you uh validate it based on like a partner's referrals too i think that's an interesting way to look at it i know gil you've had like outreach um on many on recently and um you know i think many as a partner for us and how like we generate referrals it's a good indication that um who you're going to refer is who is like in the mind share of the yeah, exactly so yeah. that's a, a good way to kind of double check your triple check based on partner referrals It sounds like both of you, yeah, that, that is very interesting. The, the, the velocity, the feedback loop, the attributes that, that analysts are confirming. These are new, I got to say. I haven't heard those before. It sounds like both of you are pretty connected and friends with the analysts. Would that be uh, a true statement? I, I would say I'm personally not like friends with the analysts. I'd say like, but maybe like my, some people on my team are, like some of my product marketing team um, are more... Uh, Uh, constantly talking to them I get brought into those conversations at times but um, I wouldn't say I'm friends that's an important distinction how often do you get brought into those discussion and influence them and, and join the narrative gender discussion um, maybe it's maybe mo- monthly there's some kind of uh, related conversation um, I can't really speak on behalf of my team though I, I, on how much they're working behind the scenes to make that happen or uh, other conversations they're having. The monthly polls. And what about you, Amitabh? I think it's less frequent than that, probably every three to four months. Um, and it's really to go define that category really well, right? Which is because the, the definition of the category, the attributes of the category change quite frequently. And you want to make sure that the analyst understands that change, right? Because our understanding is changing on a daily, monthly basis. But because the analyst is not as closely connected to us, they don't necessarily see that same degree of change. So I feel like it's our job to make sure that, um, that they do. Um, and so it's sort of to give that broad direction, right? Which is here's where we think the category is headed. Um, and I find that sort of the analysts care about if you tell them things they don't know, then they pay more attention to you. And, and then you have more influence with them and influence with customers as a result. Um, so what I'm trying to do with these with the analysts is because for us it's a filter right the analyst says no then you don't get to the next level in a, the f- funnel the yes is maybe less important but the no is super important right so um, so you want to make sure that you allow the analyst to process all the new data points that's coming into our field of view if you will 
so that they're able to constantly change their definition of the category, their analysis of the category, who should be in that category, et cetera. Um, and because I think in the current world, things are changing so frequently. Um, we see change every day, but you can't do that with analysts. They don't have the time to come in every month, but at least every three months and a quarter, and definitely sort of a big one um, before the end of the year, if you will, right? So um, we can't afford to do it right now, but in the previous jobs, uh, we would have the analyst in the office for a day or day and a half, right? Where you actually spend quality time with them. So we don't have the kind of money to do that yet, but I think that's sort of where you head to, right? Where if you want real mind share with the analyst, change the way they think, make them understand how your customers are thinking, um, then you got to do that. And in our line of business, right, where we're selling to enterprise customers, it becomes quite important. I think there's also different tiers of analysts too, or different. So that's another thing to take into account is like, are you trying to, uh, uh, you know, talk with the tier one analyst, which is kind of the end goal, but there's also kind of, in my mind, I say tier two analysts, I won't get into names, but in some cases it's easier to get meetings or talk to them and then they'll start boiling the ocean and uh, driving some awareness that then trickles up to the, the tier one analyst firms. So uh, that's a strategy that um, was, uh, I was kind of advised to also think about. Thank you. Yeah, that sounds like a good hack. Uh, and I will ask for those names later when, 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 uh, when you can share those. That's, that's interesting. Let's put the pause for a second. I want to ask some things about uh, personal and, and, and entrepreneur journey. And I want to refill my glass. So take it a second to, to do yours as well. Amitav, what are you drinking today? I know, I know that uh, Chris is drinking tequila. Some Spanish wine. I don't know. I don't remember the name. Nice. Okay. Well, cheers. Happy Friday. Thank you for sharing your insights. I really appreciate it. Uh, this conversation is very insightful. I already took like about 20 notes. So thank you. Thanks Perfect. for organizing it. Yeah, this is fun. I love, I love the topic. I was uh, happy to see uh, your email in my inbox to talk about it. That's really cool. Uh, tell me about the worst moment you had as an entrepreneur, starting with you, Amitab. I can't, I can't share the worst moment. How's that? Second worst. Um, it's okay if you don't want to share. I have one top of mind that I can to go on. Yeah. Oh, go for it, Chris. So this was pretty, um, I, this was pretty bad and I, I felt pretty bad about this. But the, uh, so when we were getting going, me and my co-founder at Sendoso, um, our, our first hire we made ended up not working out. So we ended up firing our first hire like, uh, literally about three weeks in and it was just a it was an introduction into the company we didn't really do a good uh, we just assumed it was going to be a good fit and it wasn't and that like for that moment it felt like we were going to fail we were doomed it was like we can't even hire one person like we're we're, we're effed and so that felt really like uh, it was like a gut check um, you know looking back we almost have 400 employees now so it's kind of funny to look at but that was like a a holy, you know, heck moment where I thought, you know, I had, I was like, I, I thought we were going to fail. So uh, that's something that at least resonated with me today. Oh, that's legit. Uh, first, first firing. Uh, thank you for sharing that. Okay. Amitab? You know, I think our, this was early on, but we had one of our strategic partners um, ready to lead a series A round and everybody, um, was ready to do it. Final presentation was to the CEO. Uh, they said it's just a matter of uh, uh, just formality. He never says no. <laughs> and guess what? He said no. 
and that was uh, pretty sad because we were sort of already ready to um, go spend the money and uh, um, it was like hey this is a done decision and this was after three months of sort of dating if you will and um, it was rejected and uh, we had to start all over again which was just not not fun that's tough for mm-hmm. sure that's a classic right um, thank you for sharing that it's not done till it's done I guess not done till it's done right because he, none, none of you said said no uh, it was just a sad moment but you got over it I thank you for sharing those um, let's switch to the best moment best moment you had as an entrepreneur me tell you first you know I would still say it's it's that that one moment when we knew things were going well which was when that customer called and said we're going to be your biggest customer and we looked at everything else and uh, are you going to be able to support us as a big customer that was I, I think you don't get too many first calls like that uh, where they're basically telling you they're going to be your biggest customer and they still are our biggest customer <laughs> when was that this was two years ago two and a half maybe even three years ago no maybe two years ago that's cool Chris what, what was your best moment as a founder Yeah, I mean, I think it was probably back in uh, similarly related to customers, probably our very first customer back in 2017 who's still a customer today, but it was the very first person that after we spent like a year, you know, getting everything ready and then we finally said, okay, who's want, who wants to buy? And they're the first ones to, you know, sign a contract and pay us money. That was just like a really good uh, moment. Validation. Yes. That's, that's awesome. Yeah. Um... Tell me, uh, you know, there are many, like you read, many entrepreneurs, many of our listeners, they, and myself included, right? Like uh, VentureBeat, TechCrunch, Saster, like there are so many events, so many stories, so many romantic overnight success stories, and all kinds of like best, uh, you know, best practice for SaaS founders and all kinds of absolute truth that they teach us in publications and events that some of them are true and many of them are bullshit. What are absolute truth one or two that each of you have that are hidden? So something that you know to be absolutely true for yourself as a founder and a CEO of a tech company that might be different than the common narrative that is public out there. I mean, one that comes to mind for me, at least is like a Silicon Valley tech uh, CEO is, or, or founder is that, You know you have to work like 20 hour days in order to be successful and I would say like I, I don't think that's necessarily true I like to, to travel and and I've probably been to 30 countries pre-covid while founding Sendoso so um, I think you can kind of write the life you want to live and if it's uh, a balanced life per se that's something that people can do um, and I, I I tend to say try to work smart then work long is kind of my mentality and I've tried to push that on employees too but I I'd said maybe that's one thing where some people look from the outside that every CEO and founder in Silicon Valley are working 20 hour days and I don't think that's necessarily a hundred percent true insightful for sure I think many would love to learn how you do that that's uh, that's super cool yeah. 30 countries yeah what about you Amitab I think for me it is the problems we are solving are you super important to the rest of the it's the problems the valley has companies in the valley have and the problems the rest of the world has there might be some problems which are similar but a lot of the problems are very different right so yeah, in our early days at least with the with the valley VCs it was we were trying to solve a problem and they would say like but I don't have that problem and so it must not exist and it's like 
hey, just go outside the valley. There's a lot, a lot of people who have this problem. And I just think people uh, extrapolate from their own experiences a lot in the valley, right? For example, right, Amazon Web Services is the, uh, the way I think of it, Amazon Web Services is the value of the cloud, uh, is the value of the, uh, is the cloud of the valley. And Azure is probably the cloud of the rest of the world right now, right? Which is, uh, and GCP and all these guys are fighting for the rest of the world. But the Valley Cloud has been determined. It's Amazon, right? Um, now we're fighting over the rest of the world. And so the problems, I think the, the Valley has a blind spot to what the rest of the world actually is, right? Especially in the enterprise, which is in the Valley, everybody's running on using Macs and iPad Pros and, um, yeah, and doing Google Docs and, um, and in the rest of the world, it's still completely different, right? Like, I mean, it's just a completely different world out there. So if, um, I think that's not obvious to a whole bunch of people, which is sometimes the problems you, the rest of the world has. It's very different from the problems that the Valley has. And I think the only time sort of that intersects for us is when we talk to investors, right? Or it used to happen, maybe six, seven years ago, where it was difficult to explain to people that the problem we were solving was actually outside the Valley. It was not in the Valley. Yeah. I think Sendoso might be, it might be easier because I think a lot of the Valley people probably have the same problem, right? And it should be easier to sell to Valley companies. For us, um, investors and Valley companies find it more difficult to understand what we do because, hey, that, we can just do this today by ourselves. Why do we need you guys? That is very, uh, both of them are big, right? And funny, I was just telling my wife yesterday, you know, she's like, you know, the next company, I'm thinking about B2C. I want to solve new kinds of, of, of things that are not just for like, the, all the tech companies out there. And so that, that resonates with me uh, a lot. That's very interesting. Traveling uh, is something I want to do. I want to go back to. So very jealous, uh, Chris. Any last words before to, to entrepreneurs, to CMOs who are, I don't know, Series A and, and after they, they found product market fit, they think they have a new category or they're not sure. And they're, they're thinking, how do, I, how do I tell the world that I'm different? Any, any advice there? I'd say my last like advice to takeaway is like probably two things. One is just really invest in brand maybe earlier than you think. And I think a brand helps you set yourself up. I think a lot of companies, it's all about demand gen in the early days. And if you can, you know, afford to think the long term and invest a little bit more in brand, that will help category. Um, and then I think alongside that is content. I think, you know, you can create things like buyer's guide for category or category maturity models or state of the category data reports for that content that was painful to create or might be lots of pages and lots of brain power um, will we'll have some lasting um, effects and hopefully will drive a long-term value. Thank you. Amitabh? For me, it's just customers, right? Like um, the one thing that seems to drive everything else is customers, dollars and stories, right? Which is if people pay you money for something you have built, it's worthwhile. <laughs> And, and uh, if you can just focus on that and make sure that more people buy into that same story and dollars, I think that's it. Like everything else drives off that, right? I think um, like our most loyal customers, we don't need to tell them to tell our stories. They tell them themselves, right? Um, so it's keeping customers happy sort of drives everything else. I love it. Thank you. Uh, thank you for those last, last words and insight. It was really a pleasure to, to talk to both of you. You are full of insights. Uh, I learned a lot, and I think our listeners will do as well. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you very much for spending time. Thanks, and, Gil. Uh, Thanks, Chris. Have a wonderful weekend. Cheers. Thank you both. You too. Bye. Yeah.
Thanks again for joining us. I hope that you enjoyed today's discussion and will tune in again. Find all of the B2B Category Creators episodes at metadata.io. And if you have any feedback, topics, or would like to be a guest on the show, please reach out.